What's going on, everybody? It's your boy Spencer, and uh, back with another episode of Delivering Sports. Uh, the reason I'm actually playing this song is uh, KD and Rappaport had some beef where Rappaport revealed some DMs. So private eyes are always watching. Your your words on social media will always put out whether or not you think those are private or not. Uh, but before I get into today's action, I do need to do a little self-promotion, obviously. Uh, first, please go check out my YouTube channel, Blue Milk Boys Gaming, and download. Excuse me, sorry. Adjusting little radio settings here. Uh, and also download my app, iRollPlay, for all iPhone users. Working on getting that over to Android. So give me a little time for that. But it's a great group, findi- group finder. Uh, and it's also a role-playing app, obviously, as you could probably imagine from the title of the app itself. Lots of new updates coming out, including a public chat room where you can talk to every single person on the app at the same time. Very user-friendly, uh, very cool, and growing so much over this uh, little time span that I've had here. I think I've had over 8,000 new users at least in the past year alone. Uh, also, be sure to come down to Kicker Sports and Gaming Bar each Sunday morning, where you can hear myself and Brian, who normally does his show an hour before. And again, uh, if you didn't hear my little message at the beginning of my Music Power Hour... Brian had his uh, grandkid, and unfortunately, the radio system was not uh, prepared to play his last show, so I had to be a little DJ whiz while I was getting ready for my show now. Uh, but you can hear uh, exactly. So on today's episode, we'll move on to that. I will talk about the Stephen A. Smith feud with Westbrook, KD's beef with Michael Rappaport, although what's new? KD always has beef with somebody on social media. And uh, MLB opening day, I'm actually going to be doing a mock draft for the top 10 NFL guys uh, with scouting reports, so be sure to tune in for that. And at the end, I'll show you uh, an interview with new UNLV head coach Kevin Kruger if I have time. And if I finish that, then I'll go over some NBA highlights from today's action and kind of give you my quick analysis. All right, so we can go on to this Westbrook situation, and I'll play Stephen A. Smith's initial words, like a two-minute clip. You can hear what he said after Westbrook had a massive triple-double, and he'll go over that. her name is Nina, if I remember correctly. Um, yes. I first want to respond to some of the things that she had to say, uh, because she had some some jabs to throw in my direction. Let me... Westbrook is a serious brother. Um, he's real and, and authentic in every way, and I have nothing but the utmost profound respect for him as a man. I truly mean that. And... You know, with a lot of people, I could joke around, but not when it comes to, to Russ, because that ain't his style. You know, you don't joke when it comes to him. And I respect that. Um, so I'm going to be as real and as authentic as I possibly can be. Westbrook's numbers last night mean absolutely nothing to me because even though that's great numbers, that's what Westbrook can do. We all know this. He's a former league MVP. He's the most athletic point guard we have ever seen in NBA history. Uh, He's been, I believe it was four conference finals in his career. Um, We know this, but here's the reality of the situation. Russell Westbrook, when we look at his game, it's the same stuff every year. Kevin Durant departs. You don't make it out of the first round until you get to Houston last year. Last year in Houston, he was an MVP candidate, averaging 27-7-7, okay? But in the playoffs, they obviously folded because they were going up against the Lakers and they were just overmatched. We understand that. You want out. So what do you do? You end up going to Washington. Now, 
I understand that I get to look at coaching because Scott Brooks should have some explaining to do to have the absolute worst defense in basketball. Any coach that has the worst defense in basketball should have some explaining to do. They are ranked 30th in the league in points allowed. But Bradley Beal and you are in the backcourt together, and y'all are 17 and 28 in the Eastern Conference. And you're Russell Westbrook, and I want to remind everybody who are the teammates have been. Kevin Durant. Now, Russell Westbrook's getting paid over $200 million. And damn it, because of the fervor he brings to the game, I understand him getting that money. But in terms of results, Kevin Durant was your teammate. Harden was your teammate not once but twice. Reggie Jackson was your teammate. Serge Ibaka was your teammate. Victor Oladipo was your teammate. Paul George was your teammate. Bradley Beal is your teammate. I mean, damn. You've played with some great, great players over the years, some talent, and not a single title to show for it. So to me, if I'm going to look at everybody else, whether it's LeBron and Kyrie and Steph and everybody else, I got to look at that too. I'm, the numbers are the numbers. That's Russell Westbrook. He could do that to anybody. But I'm at a point in time in, in, in his career where it's like it ain't about that no more. It's about whether or not you can get to another level to win the chip. Uh, yeah, so I like that Stephen A. Smith uh, at least preferenced his response by separating him from as a player and as a man. In case you guys don't know, I did a little research. Uh, Westbrook heads a foundation called Why Not? The website is uh, whynotfoundation.org, and it's all about helping local communities all around the country. Uh, I saw in there recently that he did a food drive in L.A. for Thanksgiving, or I guess you say last Thanksgiving, and gave out some shoes to those in need in D.C., assumingly the less fortunate. Uh, which is really nice. So I agree with him. I think Stephen. I think Westbrook is a really nice guy, and I think he really does care about the game outside. Now, does his 35 point, 21 assist, and 14 rebound performance against the Pacers mean nothing? Uh, mm, I, I've never seen something like that in my lifetime. That's for sure. Uh, I think we can all agree that's one of the most incredible performances we have ever seen. At least for me. Uh, so clearly it means more than nothing. Now, onto his point about the long-term implications of Westbrook's performances. Sure, it doesn't look good. In OKC, they actually attempted to build a team around him, getting him someone like a Paul George. In fact, Westbrook a has averaged a triple-double in four of the past five seasons and yet has never been in the top three in the West in any of those years. And obviously now you can add to that list the East. In case you were wondering, Oscar Robinson's triple-double season brought the Cincinnati Royals, wow, it's really old, right, to the second seed. He's always compared to him, so I thought, you know what, that's what I should look for. I also have to say that there were only nine teams in the league at the time, so who knows if the holes any merit, but he did better than him, technically speaking. Westbrook's biggest downfall, in my opinion, has been his shooting percentage. He's never, or no, he's only had one season of shooting over 45%, and uh, he's never been uh, like above 50 in those 45s and every other season below 45%. Uh, one thing I've always noticed about him is that he never really keeps his teammate warm. Well, in that performance specifically, obviously, uh, you would go ahead and say, yes, uh, you know, his teammates were probably pretty involved. He had 21 assists. But I'm talking on a regular basis. I went to a Suns OKC game a few years ago with my dad in Phoenix, and uh, you know he plays at another level. He's faster than everyone, but he kind of forces the ball into his teammates to shoot it really quickly, uh, meaning they're not really a part of the offense. It's just when it's getting low, you better chuck that shot up, and I hope you make it. On paper, someone averaging a triple-double 
you know, opposite of Bradley Beal, should be a top seed in the East. In John Wall's best year, which was 2016 and 2017, the Wizards were the fourth seed. Wall was averaging 23.1 points, 2.0 steals, 10.7 assists, and 4.7 rebounds. Bradley Beal that season, so that that same season, he was averaging 23.1 points, 1.1 steals, 3.5 assists, and 2.4 rebounds. Also note that they really didn't have a ton of talent on that team either. I think they had guys like Mahimni and Al-Farouk Aminu, stuff like that. So no all-stars opposite of them at all. So let's compare that to this season. Beal is averaging 31.3 points, 1.2 steals, 4.8 assists, and 5 rebounds. Westbrook has 21.8 points, 10.3 rebounds, and 10.6 assists. All that has accumulated to a 17-29 record now for the Wizards, and they're 12th in the East. At some point, Stephen A's words have to have some sort of validity to them. This leads us to Westbrook's wife with a strong response, and this is what she said according to this article. I think she went to Instagram with these words here. I don't know how many times I have to be minding my own business and randomly be subjected to you slandering my husband, who also happens to be minding his own business, being happy, and living his best life. Ironically, Russell makes history, and Stephen A. Smith comes out of nowhere to share his non-congratulations. Respectfully, I am not a fan of yours. Imagine if uh, Russell let the words of uh, Stephen A. Smith say he did not care about his accomplishments. He'd be crushed. He wouldn't be the talent he is today uh, if you listened to Stephen A. Smith tell him he wasn't good enough or that he could only celebrate his accomplishments if he lived up to what they ought, uh, thought he should be. Uh, well, I think his wife's a little off kilter here. Obviously, she is his husband, so she's going to take something like this harshly. But the reality of the situation is that Stephen A. Smith is a content creator. It's his job to be critical and make the events of the NBA into something interesting. Smith did not come out with this take just to scream on TV like so many people claim he did. He knows that it's controversial, and it's also something that he believes. He wanted to challenge people's beliefs on the situation and made, you know, he made his words purely about basketball and how he disagreed with it. So Westbrook finally came out, and this is probably the longest statement you'll ever hear from him. I'll play it now. It's about two minutes as well. So here what finally he came out of the woodwork, and this is what Westbrook had to say after his wife responded. Prime example, man, is, you know, I watch these college games and I watch these kids and these announcers, man, they get on their TV and just say anything about a kid. They don't even know him. They don't know his family. They don't know where he's from. They don't know what he's been through. They don't know his struggles. They don't know his pain. They don't know anything about the kid. Uh, But one thing said on TV can determine how you perceive this kid on TV, which will allow him not to be able to reach his goals, which will allow him not to be able to get drafted, which will allow him not to take care of his family which will now not create gener- generational wealth, which now, uh, you know, makes our, you know, our people and uh, the minorities, the underserved community, which makes that gap. It's way bigger than basketball. That's that's my entire life focus. And, and my wife, that's what she's mentioning because we talk about all the time is that, you know, I sit back. I don't say much. I don't say I don't like to go back and forth about people. Uh, but one thing I won't, won't allow to happen anymore is let people create narratives and uh, constantly just talking shit for no reason about me Ooh, um, because um, I lay it on the line every night um, and I use my platform to be able to help uh, people all across the world um, and nobody can take that away from me. Um, I've been blessed to be able to uh, have a platform to do it and like I said before, a championship don't, don't change my life. Um, I'm happy um, 
I, I was a champion once I made it to the NBA. Like I grew up in the streets. Uh, I'm a champion. Like nobody can, I don't have to be an NBA champion. I, I know many people that got NBA champions. That's miserable. Have they done nothing uh, for their community? Have done nothing for uh, the people in, in our world? And uh, for me, man, my legacy, like I, like I mentioned before, is not based on what I do on this court. Um, I'm not gonna play basketball my whole life. My legacy is what I do um, off the floor. How many people I'm able to impact and inspire along my journey, man. And uh, that's how I keep my head down and keep it pushing because it's very important um, that you don't let the, the the negativity seep in because it's been like that my whole career. Honestly, there's no other player that kind of takes the heat that I take constantly. But I, I take it as positive because obviously I'm doing something right if people are talking about me, um, and that's how I feel. And I say my best foot forward, uh, stay prayful, stay my, keep my family close and, and keep it like that. Uh, well, the first thing I'll say is that Westbrook obviously did not hear the original Stephen A. Smith clip at all. Came out firing on all cylinders about his character. You know, Russell takes this approach that the media perpetuates kids' lives to either be good or bad in sports. The analyst at ESPN, SiriusXM, myself, we have nothing to do with whether or not kids are drafted and where they go. There are scouts that do that for every single franchise in all the major leagues, or I guess in college, it's more of the head coaching job, but you know what I'm saying. They aren't listening to us and letting us sway their opinion. So when someone announces during a game that this player might not be so good, I mean, that's just what they do. That's how they get paid. If they were just yes men that said everything was hunky-dory, then you know they'd probably be fired. Uh, sports hosts make the game more entertaining. They elevate sports to another level or on, and, you know, are the reason Westbrook can make as much as he does. The other reality is not that not everybody can make it. There will be kids that spend their entire lives, you know, early, believing they can make the pros, but they'll fall short of that no matter how much, you know, they work on their craft. It's the nature of competition. It's the nature of the NBA, the NHL, MLB. You can go down the list. For Westbrook, he has to understand that fame comes with the price, too. He has to be willing to accept that he will receive criticism for anything that he does always, like every other big sports figure was. Think about how successful LeBron James is and how much flack he gets on social media when there's stuff that has absolutely nothing to do about him. Sports cannot exist in a world where everyone thinks everything is amazing. Conflict and competition are why we love sports. More than anything, it's a part of life. I don't mean to get philosophical. It's not my point. What I'm trying to say is that sports analysts are allowed to think badly of other players from a, from a professional standpoint and have their own opinion. And if the player truly is a bad person, well, then they can say that too. But I'm talking more you know, on me, like on a scouting report list or as I watch a game, something like that. Uh, more NBA beef, of course, and uh, between uh, Michael Rapport and Kevin Durant. Actually, this started all the way back in December 2020 after an interview between Charles Barkley and Kevin Durant. So I'm going to play that now. It's a pretty short clip. You can listen to it. So you really just been working on your game, trying to get back your timing and conditioning, really, be, to be honest, correct? Yeah. I've never seen anybody give you just a one-word answer, man. What's up? 
Hey, man, I don't care. Y'all know Underdog, how I am put that picture of Chuck face <laughs> on the t shirt. <laughs> hey, I don't get sensitive about these guys. Y'all know how I feel. No, I'm just saying, man. I'm just saying. face again, Jeremy. Yo, man, I had a serious announcement to make, and y'all keep screwing around. No, you don't want to get Jeremy, just show me a picture of Chuck's face. Be nice now, fellas. No, I mean, it's hard. It's the Christmas scene. But it's hard. Christmas scene. It's hard to do a. Ask me a question, Chuck. A stream. A stream call from all the way. We're here. Then it's hard. Question, Chuck. Anything? Just ask me. Anything. What time is it, Chuck? I mean, wait, hey, hey, Shaq, hey, you Shaq, think y'all go away? Hey, Shaq, uh, how was the uh, shopping spree for the kids? Pretty good. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you're not there, hey, Shaq, ask me a question. Uh, uh, Charles, uh, uh, how many uh, how many gifts did you buy for Kenny this year? None. <laughs> End I of mean, the highlights. Kenny, we go. Hey, Kenny. Yes. Kenny, how your kids doing? Good. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, Rappaport criticized Durant's short response, and he said this on Twitter. KD seemed deeply in his feelings with the at NBA on TNT crew after the game. Darn it, that's not what he said, but you get the point. He's super sensitive about everything. Don't do the interview. So, that prompted KD to go into his direct messages with you, a B. Again, I'm censoring a little bit here. It gets a lot worse. Uh, Rapport came back with, just do the effing interview, and if you're upset about something they've said, say something. Uh, up there looking like you're going to cry. Uh, KD responded with, I did the interview, you bleep. Tell your baby daddy Chuck to be better at his job and frame his questions better. He gave me two options for that bad question, yes or no. Also, obviously, no, he didn't. He's asking you about the training process. That was just kind of the initial frame to get you going. So he's objectively wrong there, in my opinion. Uh, the exchange would actually get worse. At one point, Katie called him the C-word, that he would spit in his face, and also asked to meet him somewhere to fight by a steakhouse, I think. Uh, Katie actually does uh, blow up his DMs a lot with horrific things, which is hilarious if you watch Howard Stern, uh, because you know how awful he is to the staff and the fantasy league they do there. And uh, I'm not a Michael Rappaport stand too. I'll just say that in case you guys think that I'm kind of taking his side on this. Kevin Durant's way out of pocket. But the first topic to discuss here is whether or not Michael should be going public on Twitter about some DMs. In my mind, you're talking on social media, which means everything is public domain anyways. You can't get unhinged online because you aren't posting it on the main timeline. It seems a little goofy to do something like that, but, you know, he was getting... He was being a little extreme about it, and you can check out the direct messages. Those were just some of them that I told you about. The second factor to, is that Rappaport understands how to get people's attention and push their buttons. He's able to navigate the media landscape better than most people. When he feels his uh, interaction rates aren't where he wants them to be, he can easily create the buzz he's looking for. The guy has so many conflicts going on at one time, he just has to choose which one he wants to go public with. I'm sure his DMs are constantly flooded with other celebrities saying something bad about him. The other major part, part about this is Kevin Durant's response I started this all, like I said. This connects well with the Westbrook-Stephen A. Smith situation I just talked about. Durant has to know that one-word answers are not what media personnel are looking for. If you feel the question wasn't worded well, then talk about it. The TNT crew drives a lot of people to the game. They always say controversial things that get trendy on Twitter most of the time. Like Almost every time they do a broadcast, something that they do, I will find up you know, in the world of, of sports Twitter, if you want to call it that. Uh, that is one of the NBA's biggest partnerships when it comes to getting people to watch. Kevin Durant has to understand that part of signing his contract with the Nets includes moments like this. Now, if he went to some Joe Schmo place that nobody, if he went to 
uh, Sacramento. He probably wouldn't be having to do too many of these little post-game interviews. But when you sign with one of the biggest teams in the league and now you have a super team, you're going to be talking to these people quite a bit. And they expect a lot out of you. You're the best player on the team. Durant has a long you know, history of sensitivity, dating all the way back to 2017 when he was exposed for using fake accounts to defend himself on Twitter. It, it's strange to see one of the greatest basketball players of all time be subjected to behavior like this. All the other players on the top 10 list, like MJ and LeBron, have controlled their narrative like quite well, as we've seen. They've never responded to criticism and are always the cool heads, like the cool guys, like you say. Cooler heads will prevail is kind of the idea I'm going for. And Durant is definitely not that at all. And this was his response because he got fined $50,000. What's your response to the reaction to the, you know, the social media messages that were made public on, on getting on social media? I'm sorry that people seen uh, the language I use. It's not really what I want people to see and hear from me. <clears throat> but um, hopefully I can move past it and get back out on the floor. Uh, so I guess the real question here is should he have been fined, you know, $50,000? I guess. I mean, the league does try to take some strong stances. They always want to be known as the most progressive league. It's weird to see something so private be that punishment. We also saw that with Dolan back when he kind of made those racist comments. And I know there's another guy who got fired from his position for that. And it's all contextual. But yeah, that kind of language and that kind of thing, just behavior in general, should not be uh, praised or not go unpunished. And as long as they keep it consistent, right? then I think that's totally fine, and they seem to be doing that. I think the NBA does a very good job of dishing out equal punishment to everybody. Unless it was LeBron, then, of course, they would do nothing. Uh, but that was kind of the basketball news that I'm going to talk about. You know, otherwise, if I have time at the end of the show, which I most likely won't, uh, you know, that was the news for you know last week that I think you guys should know about. Uh, opening day of baseball. Uh, baseball officially returned. The league planning on returning to its regular 162 games we have become accustomed to over the years. You guys know my personal opinion that the season is way too long and a big reason people are trending away from the game. It's almost impossible to be completely locked into the season for that long unless you are just obsessed with baseball. Most people watch opening day, then check back in when the playoffs start. When it comes to a 60-game season, people are much more invested in the day-to-day operation. Trade deadlines become a lot more intense, and players are just fresher in general. And I'm actually uh, I'm going to go over some of these games. I'm going to be bringing my, my dad on to talk a little baseball because, first of all, we're doing a baseball podcast coming up soon, trying to determine what the greatest baseball movie of all time is. And maybe we can talk a little bit about that too, but I'll go over some of them and then you know, my dad will tell my his opinion on whether or not he thinks the season should be shorter and some of these rule changes. A uh, 162 game season is already under the threat after the Washington Nationals had four positive tests uh, of COVID-19, meaning they will be missing around six games to start the season, uh, which is just my opinion because they play so much in a short time, especially with the full season now. And uh, that is that's assuming they can figure it out quickly and they've stopped the spread like at its source. I don't understand why MLB couldn't have come to like a 140-game season. That gives them a good amount of flex spots to fill out the season when these kinds of delays inevitably happen. Uh, I suppose they're depending big time on the vaccine rollout, meaning the players would theoretically not be able to get the virus a couple months into the season. Uh, now on to day one's action. 
Uh, let me say that uh, I do not anticipate talking much about the day-to-day baseball stuff on the show, but uh, I thought you know this could be an exception because the season did just uh, get started here. Uh, the Dodgers started their season on a very strange foot in an 8-5 to loss to the Rockies in a game where Kershaw was not throwing his best. Two errors, including one that was an easy ground ball uh, flying past the shortstop. It was horrible. And Cody Bellinger, a doofus play. Uh, basically, what happened was there was a home run. He didn't see it, so he ran back to first base. But, of course, the guy's batting. So a home run turns into a single and out. I, I mean, it's one of the biggest blunders I've ever seen. And the the Dodgers left 14 men on base in scoring position. With all of that, they actually gave them chance, uh, gave themselves a chance to win at the end of the game. They had the game tying, uh, you know, the batter on plate, and they had the guys on bases. Uh, you know, they'll want to shake the first day jitters out of their mind, but you know they'll have plenty of time to do that in a long 162 game season. I'm not going to overreact just quite yet. The Angels made a nice statement against the White Sox. Oh, better change my graphics. Sorry about that. Um, let's see here. Uh, they were down three to one in the fifth inning. That's right. Uh, help from the likes of Mike Trout and Albert Pujols. Can't believe that guy still plays. Uh, helped elevate them to a lead in the eighth inning. Otani actually scored the go-ahead run in that inning, make it look, making it look like you know L.A. started the season clicking on all cylinders. And even better news for them, new reliever uh, Rossell Iglesias stepped in the ninth and took care of business swiftly. Uh, so the baseball season waited no time to have a bizarre game. And this time I'm actually going to be bringing my father on. Uh, Dad, are you there? I'm still here. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, well, it's you told me before the show started that you did watch this weird Giants game, who I believe had a six to one uh, lead going into the eighth inning. So what happened at the bottom of the eighth? Oh man, it, it, it was awful. Like the starting pitcher, he threw a gem. He, he threw six and two thirds innings, a shutout baseball. And then uh, I don't know why, but these managers come in, they think they have to bring in these specialty pitchers well especially pitchers they couldn't hit the broad side of the barn and they could not find the strike zone and they just kept giving run after run after run they took a six to one lead into the eighth and, and all of a sudden they're down seven to six uh so uh, yeah so what happened in the ninth inning right because uh were the giants able to tie it up and go into extra innings yeah giants tie it up uh they get a guy uh their first batter to hit a home run tie the game up goes in the extra innings, and, and which I hate extra innings in baseball now because to me it's just not baseball. They put a runner on second base and basically left the score the run game in the game. Um, but it, it, it was a shame the Giants really just blew. Yeah. And from what I understand, actually, the game ended because of the pitcher had four consecutive, or I guess it would be three consecutive walks, and that and there wasn't even a hit in extra innings. That's how the Giants lost, which is just yeah, so they strange. The walk away and run. It was, it was disgusting. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm trying to go back to my roots a little bit. My grandfather is a big Giants fan, so I'm going to try to follow follow the Giants this year and see, see how bad they do again. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, they've had a lot of success in recent years, and maybe they'll be able to do that, not starting off on the greatest. But, uh, well, Dad, they are going back to 162 games, and I don't like it. Do you think it's like, you know, that's how baseball is? It's got to be 162 games, or do you think the game needs to change, at least on that front? No, I'm with you. I mean, if they're making changes to try to speed the game up, to try to uh, get younger, younger fans to watch the game, that's why they bring in the runner on second base in the extra innings to try to speed the game up. Then, 
yeah, I'm all for knocking off. It, it doesn't need to be 160 games. I mean, if, if they knock off some games, all of a sudden the early part of the season is interesting. Like you said, right now there's no interest in baseball. They're waiting, waiting until the end of the year when there's a couple of playoff runs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I'll give you one more rule change because I don't think the pitching clock is, is – I think it's horrible as well. I don't know why you'd want to rush that. Uh, what about a seven-game innings? Do you think that would change the game too drastically? Are you in favor of shorter, you know, basketball – or I should say baseball bouts? Uh, how do you feel about seven innings instead of nine? No, no, I'm a traditionalist when it comes <laughs> to that. I like the nine innings. And uh, I like nine innings. I hate replay. Uh, I hate it, hate it. I think you just play the game. Uh the umpires make a call, and, and you got to deal with it. But obviously, because uh, they introduce replay, that's not going to go away. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you'll ever go back, so I don't think you'll get that wish. Uh, speaking of, you know, the pure game of baseball, you and I are doing our first episode of our podcast soon. I think I have three more movies to watch. We're searching for the greatest sports movie of all time, and we're starting with baseball. How has the experience been for you so far? How many new movies have you watched, and have you changed your opinion on some of the older ones that you haven't seen in a long time? Absolutely. I've, I've rewatched everything. I've done, done my due diligence. I have two more to go. Need to watch Moneyball. Need to rewatch Field of Dreams, which I know is not my favorite, but I will rewatch it. Um, I, I, I've had my opinion swayed a little bit because some of these movies I haven't seen in so long, and I forget how great they are. Like a movie like League of Their Own, uh, uh, it really, uh, to me, I'm up a few notches from what I thought it was. It's just really a great baseball. Yeah, so me, uh, well, I guess to say myself and my dad, we'll give you guys updates the closer we get to that. Uh, that episode will actually premiere on Grabit.com. It's a uh, TV online network that I produce for, and we're looking forward to that. I'll tell you guys my quick opinion that Sandlot will not be closer to, to, to the uh, top of my list. I don't think that movie is the greatest baseball movie of all time uh, by a long shot. I know you disagree with me there, Dad, but uh, I'm looking forward to doing this first episode with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I have uh, we have another gentleman coming on, Jim O'Hare. He's a big sports fan. He's, he's seen all these movies, and uh, we're going to have a great discussion. Might might take two episodes. There's so many great baseball movies. Yeah, so it's the biggest category by far. So that might be the only one with two episodes. But uh, all right, Dad. Well, uh, thanks for coming on and talking about the opening day of baseball and just kind of baseball in general. Okay, sounds great. And uh, I'll be listening, and hopefully we'll talk to you next week. All right, I'll talk to you soon, Dad. Yeah, okay, thanks. All right. So, uh, yeah, that was that Giants game, and that podcast is coming up. We're really excited about that. We'll continue through a few more of the baseball games. I'm not going to go over all of them. I wasn't able to, obviously, watch every game. These are just kind of my big notes from it. Uh, the Astros continue to show that, uh, you know, no matter how much they're hated, uh, they're simply just one of the best teams in baseball still. In a shower of boos from the Oakland A's fans, Houston managed to secure an 8-1 victory further cementing you know the idea that they blatantly cheated with zero repercussions from the league's front office 2020 Cy Young winner uh, Shane Bieber started his campaign on a strong note with 12 strikeouts versus the Cleveland Indians uh, but they felt short in a 3-2 loss Roberto Perez actually got the game close with his two-run homer in the ninth uh, but it wasn't enough to close the gap unfortunately 
Uh, well, yeah, sure. If you're a fan, I would be unfortunate. I don't really care. Uh, remember how I said uh, baseball waited no time for bizarre games? Well, the Giants weren't the only ones. The Arizona Diamondbacks became the first team in MLB history to have four home runs in the same inning. With that being said, they found a way to lose the game 8-7 to to the Padres. In that game, Manny Machado and Fernando Titus Jr. combined for 1-10 of 10 at the plate, adding even more to the mysticism of that game, which you know deserves to be watched at least just from a spectacle standpoint on how it, that came to be. Uh, the only other game worth mentioning uh, for, was the Cubs. Uh, since they're on the verge of a complete meltdown, I'm also a Cubs fan. I kind of inherited that from the family. Uh, the 2016 squad that shocked the world is now being held up by one of the worst pitching crews in Major League. Uh, they lose to the Padres 5-3, to and or the Pirates, I should say, 5-3. to While there's a whole season left to play, uh, it would not surprise me to see Anthony Rizzo, Chris Bryant, and Javier Baez gone by the midpoint of the season during the trade deadline. Uh, in this hypothetical world where that happens and the Cubs go back to being the worst team in baseball, would that make their run worth it in 2016? Absolutely. Selling out for one championship will always be better than making the playoffs every year with no actual chance to go all the way. That's how I feel about it. Uh, moving on here, the NFL draft is quickly approaching us. I'm going to go, I'm, you know, I'm going to try and do some content each week leading up to it. I think it's on April 30th. And uh, I'm going to give you my scouting report uh, and mock draft for the top 10 picks so you guys can have a better understanding when the day comes. Uh, next week, I'm going to try to do a little bit of a Raiders mock draft since we are here in Vegas. And then the next week after that, who knows, maybe I'll give some of my best sleeper picks and my scouting analysis there. So let's just dive right into it. At number one, I think we all know the Jaguars will be selecting. So is Trevor Lawrence the best QB prospect in the draft? Uh, or I should say the biggest QB prospect since Andrew Luck. Uh, you know, firstly, his decision-making is top-notch. He has an incredible ability to discern what the best kind of pass is to make in order for his receivers to be in the best possible situation. Uh, let's see here. You know, whether that be a lob pass, a bullet pass, or, you know, the back shoulder, he always seems to pick the right one. He puts a tremendous amount of trust in his receivers, meaning it will be the key to his success in the NFL. Jacksonville will have to spend a significant amount of time ensuring their skill position players know exactly where to be. Otherwise, it could lead to some turnovers during the season. Lawrence also has the ability to read defenses and more specifically body language. He understands the fundamentals of player positioning and the way they orientate their bodies to cover players. You have to watch the game tape. I can't show you any now because I'll be, you know, taking off the interwebs faster than I can finish the show. Uh, but another thing about Lawrence is despite the fact that he's 6'6", he's quite fast on his feet. There were times that Clemson used the read option in the red zone and Lawrence opted to keep the ball and he outran defensive ends for touchdowns, which could translate very easily to the NFL, although technically those guys will be a little faster. It'll depend on the matchup. He isn't perfect like a lot of people make him out to seem. Uh, he actually has a little bit of an issue like with his like fundamentals when it comes to footwork. He'll often spread his legs out too far, forcing him to overcompensate with his arm in short accuracy uh, when he's being blitzed. Beyond that, he seems way too willing to take massive shots. Like 
he's just going to get himself injured. He's got to learn sometimes the sack's a little better or, you know, throw the ball out just a little bit earlier. That comes with experience, so I think he'll be okay there. And, you know, he'll have every chance in the world to be successful with his new head coach. At number two, I believe the Jets will be taking quarterback Zach Wilson out of BYU. Uh, I know they have Sam Darnold, but everybody seems to think this is the consensus pick. They're not going to want to roll with Sam Darnold with this new regime they brought in. That's just not usually how it works. And, uh, you know, on draft day, you will hear Patrick Patrick Mahomes in the same sentence as Wilson from various analysts, mostly for his playmaking ability. He has no issue stepping up in the pocket and firing rockets down the field, you know, not having to even formally plan his feet. The worst thing about him is where he played. BYU faced the likes of Navy, Louisiana Tech, and Texas State on route to their 11-1 record. Every opponent they faced was just simply inferior. On top of that, Wilson was one of the most protected QBs in the entire country. The Jets will want to figure that out as fast as they can, considering they gave up the ninth most sacks in the league last year at 43. It is worth noting that when he was pressured, he did perform quite well. His decision-making is probably the best thing about him. I watched a video, uh, the guy's name was, I think, Samuel Gold the other day, and he said that 1% of his throws were quote-unquote turnover-worthy when the national average was above three. Uh, So that's a really big difference, and, uh, you know, he was just smart with the the ball and where he placed it. Uh, Zach will have to work really hard in the offseason on reading defenses better. Unlike Trevor Lawrence, he doesn't showcase the ability to anticipate defensive behaviors or read body language for that matter, which is just a whole nother level, and that's what makes Trevor just so good. I think he'll also have to develop in making the game easier for himself. He often, he you know, he too often looked for bigger plays that weren't open and ignored the open receiver on a short route. Again, I think he'll be fine, and, uh, you know, he's just one of those big names out there that just rocketed up, I think, after the season was over. At number three, I'm not convinced the 49ers will take a quarterback. You know, Jimmy Garoppolo took them to the Super Bowl just two years ago, and maybe they feel they're a playmaker and health, more importantly, away from getting back, you know, all the way. With that being said... Uh, I'm not sure they'll be able to pass up at Justin Fields in this position. The only other player I'll say right now that I think is worth giving up three first-round picks is Sewell, the offensive tackle out of Oregon. Kyle Pitts is too injured, and Sewell is just, he opted out last season, so it's probably why I even heard too much about him. But he's like a generational talent on the offensive line. Uh, so if it's not Justin Fields, to me, it's Sewell. And that's the take, you know, and I also just want to mention that it will not be Mac Jones, despite everything that you said. Mac Jones is not the third overall pick in this draft, and he sure as heck is not worth giving up three first rounders for. Uh, For the past decade, Ohio State quarterbacks have relied heavily on athleticism like Cardell Jones, Dwayne Haskins and Terrell Pryor. While Justin Fields' 4.44 40-yard dash on his pro day sure seems to continue that trend, he does a lot more than that. He has one of the most accurate arms in the entire draft and can make throws at all three levels. Another great thing about him is just how tough he is. We all know about that nasty hit he took against Clemson last year, and uh, that would have sidelined the majority of QBs for weeks. Instead, he got himself out there and he had a heck of a game against Alabama in the national championship, where their defense ultimately you know, let them let him down more and the team i guess you could say uh field shows a great desire to receive coaching and uh, improve upon his mistakes on a weekly basis you know with that in mind he, he has to get a better pocket awareness 
he's way too focused at times on his reads and ignores the possibility of being sacked or having the pocket just even collapse around him. Like Wilson, Fields also struggles to anticipate throws a bit. This could be a much better situation. Uh, you know, this would be better for the 49ers to have this kind of problem because he can't sit behind Jimmy. There's no obligation for them, despite giving up all those picks, similar to Patrick Mahomes. Uh, and he can just learn how the game works, learn how to anticipate it, learn their offense, which would be really nice for him. And probably the best possible scenario and team for him to end up going on. Plus, we all know, all know Kyle Shanahan is uh, one of the best offensive coordinators in the game in San Francisco. At number four, I think Atlanta is uh, completely fine with Matt Ryan being their QB for now. This is especially true because I think there's a significant gap between those three quarterbacks and the ones that will be taken after. In fact, the Falcons will see this position as a gift. Since they are you know, touting Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley already, they will likely take Kyle Pitts, the tight end, out of Florida. Pitts is an athletic monster. We usually talk about receivers being the best 50-50 ball catchers, but in this year's draft, he takes number one. Florida often line this guy up as a single receiver outside in the second half in the field, just so they can match him up with corners. He often beat DBs in the SEC, mind you, on slant routes simply because of how scary he is on the outside. And one of those guys who he beat often was Alabama cornerback, who will be taken inside the top 10. So that's how well he's doing on the outside, kind of like slot position, if you will. His hands are unnaturally strong for his position. This would be the best pick for Falcons in the long term as well. You know, when they do decide to go with a new QB in the near future, they will have Calvin Ridley and Pitts to help transition that quarterback to the next level when he's ready. Players of Pitts' caliber just simply don't exist in many drafts. TJ Hawkinson was okay, but this guy is mountains above him, and we all know TJ Hawkinson's actually pretty good. The one bad thing about his game is that he's had injury problems. He's never played a full season, and he only amassed eight games last year. I think he missed four, and before that, he only had 13 games played. At number five, Cincinnati has a no-brainer. I kind of just talked about this guy. They will be taking offensive tackle Panay Sewell from Oregon as long as he's there. The Bengals potentially shortened Joe Burrow's career last year by not protecting him, and they will not want to make the same mistake again. Luckily for them, they will be selecting what most people consider to be a generational talent. With 2019 resume that included zero sacks allowed, seven pressures allowed, and 58 knockdowns, this guy is an absolute monster. Sewell was used in Oregon's schemes to chip the edge rusher and find open corners to block on screen plays. The kind of athletic ability alone, like that kind, makes him one of the best talents in this draft period. And I actually think last year was one of the most talented offensive line drafts we've had in the past decade. He would still be taken number one out of all those guys with no question. This guy is dedicated to his craft. He's so swift on his feet and can adjust his speed from outside with amazing positioning. He also somehow possesses the strength of an interior lineman. He manhandled numerous NFL-caliber players throughout all of 2019. Whether it's a straight drop back, pulling from the left side of the line to block inside, or running to help blocks for screens like I mentioned earlier, it literally does not matter. The Bengals couldn't have asked for anything better here. At number six, I have the Miami Dolphins taking receiver 
uh, Jamar Chase from LSU. Despite how talented last year's receiver class was, many predicted Chase would still have been the first receiver off the board to the Raiders, although you can never have any sort of faith with Mike Mayock as the general manager. But any sane person would have taken Jamar Chase first. Uh, after a pedestrian freshman season at LSU, he exploded onto the scene in 2019 with Joe Burrow. He recorded over 1,700 yards to go along with a ridiculous 20 touchdowns. Chase is an elite route runner and has an amazing feel for the game, similar to Trevor Lawrence. He's able to understand defensive schemes, which is rarely seen from his position at all. He also does really well in scramble plays when everything's kind of been broken down. Uh, pressing this kid in college was something that could rarely be done. I think Diggs last year uh, just got absolutely demolished by him in 2019. He actually pushed that guy out of the first round because of that performance, which is just... To have that kind of game, you must be pretty special. The Dolphins will, like everyone else, benefit from a QB-heavy draft, since I believe Chase will normally be a top-three pick in most of them. The only thing worth mentioning against his game is that he's only six foot one and uh, would not be classified as an athletic freak when it comes to jumping up. He's just a very technically sound and one of the smartest receivers, I think, that will be in the league for a long time. Uh, at number seven, the Lions sure would have wished to see Jamar Chase to them here, but I just don't think that'll be the case. Instead, they'll have to settle, I say that in quotes, settle for Devontae Smith. The 2020 Heisman winner was an absolute beast. He had 117 receptions for 1,856 yards and 23 touchdowns. Like Chase, he's also 6'1". Like many Alabama receivers, he also has game-breaking speed. They used him in numerous sets, meaning they they wanted to do anything they could to put the ball in his hands. When he isn't being pressed, it's near impossible for most corners to stay with him. He's basically a slower Henry Ruggs, slightly slower, let me say that, but with skill added on top of it. Uh, you know, strong. Strangely enough, like he just actually wasn't playing against press coverage a lot in college. The stronger guys in the NFL will likely be able to push him off the line pretty easily. Many people think that Detroit will be looking to take a QB here, uh, but considering the best prospect left in this draft, uh, in, you know, quarterback-wise is Mac Jones, and you, you could say Trey as well, but not to me. Can you even discern him from Jared Goff that significantly? On top of that, I can't think of a worse situation to place a rookie QB in, so that's why I have him there. Uh, at number eight, I think Carolina will select Mac Jones. While his hype this offseason won't produce a top three pick like many are predicting, it will be enough to propel, propel him into the top ten. Jones projects to be the prototypical Tom Brady-like quarterback from yesteryear. He is dedicated to film study and has, has a great arm for throwing the ball deep downfield. Jones understands the Alabama offense to a T, or I should say he did last year. He was in full control the whole season and had a fundamental idea where all his offensive weapons would be, leading to his 77% completion percentage. I think he only threw like one or two interceptions as well. Like Joe Burrow, he will also be noted as having you know great one of the best pocket awareness. Joe Burrow had elite footwork on top of pocket awareness, uh, but the, just the knowledge of what's going on around him, I think he does excels in. Uh, the first knack his game is that he doesn't handle pressure very well uh, outside of, you know, handling the pocket, like I just said. You know, when things don't go as designed, he isn't the kind of quarterback like Lawrence or Wilson who will make things happen on the fly. His vision at times is a lot like Matt Flynn. That's why I like to compare him to, which if you're a Raiders fan, uh, you know is absolutely horrific. 
Uh, he'll be so obsessed with his first read that he'll blatantly ignore wide-open receivers. When he feels the heat, he'll often throw his mechanics out the front door, making his turnover-worthy uh, throw percentage higher than most in the first round. I think probably the highest, if I had to take a guess. don't know the exact stats, but you know where I'm going with this. Carolina will, you know, was in the top half of the leagues in sacked allowed uh, with 36 last year, but there's no doubt in my mind that he'll be throwing over 10 interceptions next year because of that very trait. At number nine, uh, the Broncos will be desperate enough to take on quarterback Trey Lance, which some people have him at number three. Uh, Todd McShay says he, on his list, he is the number three quarterback in the entire draft. He's leapfrogged both of those guys, which I didn't, I disagree with. Uh, but the first thing you'll notice about him is his ability to run with the football. While he's not nearly the size of Cam Newton, and uh, you know, to that I say who will ever be, uh, the guy projects to get some serious rushing yards each season. His running style is more akin to a running back than a receiver. Uh, like kind of, you know, Lamar Jackson, I think, is more of like a finesse runner. He'll actually put his head down Trey Lance and try to get a few extra yards. North Carolina, you know, designed read play options and quarterback sneaks, meaning he has the ability to open up playbooks more than any other quarterback in this entire draft. Uh, Lance has also shown the ability to make passes on all three levels. The biggest issue with the quarterback, and it's a big one, uh, is that he played at North Dakota State, which means he has never played against NFL caliber players. On top of that, they were so over-the-top dominant you know, in his division, which is like Division Two, that his first read was almost always available and open. In fact, when it wasn't, he often just took off running immediately. In order to succeed in the NFL, he will have to be able to go through his reads, or he just simply won't make it in the league. His arm strength also leaves a lot to be desired, in my opinion. Finally, at number 10, the Cowboys will thank their stars for an offensive heavy top 10 uh, and take cornerback Patrick Certain uh, the second. The corner has some of the best handwork from a corner I've seen coming out of the draft in the past two years. He has the ability to push receivers off their route and close off their catching lanes rather than letting them open up for potential throws from the quarterback. His hip work is something to be admired, and he reads opposing receivers' hips like a book. He has a feel for the game similar to Jamar Chase, like on the opposite side of the ball, I guess, which is an intangible trait that cannot be caught. I wish, uh, I can't think of his name now, the safety for the Raiders would be able to do that, Jonathan Abrams, but uh, we all know that is not going to happen. The only problem is that he doesn't do well against bigger opponents, nor would you want him matched up on the slot. He thrives on disrupting his matchups at the line of scrimmage, and if he can't control that pace of play, he struggles. Many scouts say he lacks the speed to stay with receivers deep down the field as well. He played a lot of man-to-man snaps, and I think he would actually do probably better in those intermediate zones on the outside where he basically excels and uh, is able to read. Also gives him more of a chance to just kind of get a feel for the game instead of sticking on his opponent. Uh, you know, the Cowboys are desperate for defense, and he's definitely the best option available. It's as simple as that. Uh, looks like I have about four minutes here. I was going to play some of that interview, but it's such a short amount of time. Uh, I'm, I'll just go over some NBA action tonight. Quickly give you uh, my rundown, some guys to uh, take a look at. The Memphis Grizzlies uh, beat the Minnesota Timberwolves 120-108. to 108. Top performer from that matchup was Jonas Valanciunas. He had 19 points, 11 rebounds. On the other side, in a losing effort, 
uh, to no one's surprise, Carl Anthony Towns had 30 points, 16 rebounds, two assists, one steal, and one block. I think Anthony Edwards also had a decent game. He had uh, 22 points, three rebounds, and six assists on nine of 14 shooting. And uh, obviously, he's having quite the bounce back. I well, I can't say bounce back year. It's his rookie season, uh, but you know. He was kind of horrible in the first half of the season, and now he's really starting to progress. He will win Rookie of the Year simply because LaMelo Ball is out. Uh, other games, I have the Charlotte Hornets, who many thought would just fall off the face of the planet, uh, are actually playing quite well. They had a 114-97 victory over the Indiana Pacers. Miles Bridges led the Hornets with 23 points, 10 rebounds, 1 assist, 2 steals, and 1 block. Top performer for the Indiana Pacers, who should have never let go of their head coach, was one of the biggest mistakes their franchise has ever made because they hired somebody who isn't as good. Uh, He had 16 points, 4 rebounds, 5 assists, and 2 steals. Going on to the New York Knicks, who are just sliding right now, unfortunately. Uh, Well, I guess, you know, I'm kind of a... I like to keep track with them, and I think everybody does. The most valuable franchise outside of probably the Lakers and the league, if not the most valuable uh, they lost again. They recently lost to the Timberwolves, the Miami Heat, and now the Mavericks, 99-86. Luka Doncic, to no one's surprise, uh, was the top performer for their team. Uh, 26 points, 8 rebounds, 7 assists, and 1 steal. Julius Randle had uh, a decent stat line, but one of his worst performances, in my opinion, of uh, recent memory. 14 points, 8 rebounds, 11 assists on 5 of 20 shooting. 20% is not going to get it done in most games. Uh, This one's not too much of a surprise. The Celtics had a 118-102 victory over the Houston Rockets. Christian Wood is back, for those of you who don't know. Uh, The kid is playing well. 19 points, 10 rebounds, 3 assists, and 2 steals in the losing performance. The the Boston Celtics, who traded away Daniel Tice, are going to be depending very heavily on Robert Williams here. And uh, he actually had a great game for them. 20 points, 9 rebounds, 8 assists, 1 steal, and 2 blocks. Uh, let's see. Yeah, a lot of players on the stat sheet, actually. Evan Fournier, who I think was 0 for 8 in his first performance with the Celtics, he kind of is starting to get his rhythm, which is natural. 23 points and two rebounds, uh, no assists, but, you know, that's not what they had him do. They wanted him to shoot from three-point range. In fact, he was 7 for 11 from downtown in that game. Jason Tatum uh, also added 26 points, 9 assists, and 0 assists. So they just don't move the ball very well. And Kemba Walker is just getting worse and worse, I think, as the days go on. Uh, This was definitely one of the bigger surprises of the night. Well, not surprising, but the score was the Raptors, 130-77 victory. Pascal Siakam, it was his birthday, scored 36 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists, and 2 steals in their victory. And uh, it's actually the most points by a Toronto Raptor uh, on their birthday. I don't really know what that's worth. Lots of other games still in action. The New Orleans Pelicans are getting blown out by the Atlanta Hawks, 101-84 with 9.20 left. Uh, But that looks about... All the time I have left uh, for the Delivering Sports Show tonight. I want to thank my dad for coming on uh, and thank everybody for listening. You can catch out this. I'm trying to upload all the podcasts. Or you can go to grabit.com. That's G-R-A-B-E-T.com uh, to watch all the replays of the show. I do broadcast most of them. Very rarely will I not. You can catch that on my Twitter, at SpencerTheWiz. Uh, or you can go to KSHP, which is at KSHP Vegas. And we also have a podcasting network where I upload it there. Very accessible all the time. Many more delivering sports shows, uh, many more Fridays. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And be on the lookout for that podcast I have coming up. 
Coach Harvey Hyde is heard right here. AM 1400, KSHP, North Las Vegas, and KSHP.com. USA Radio News. I'm Brandon Gunther. The suspect in the deadly Friday attack on the Capitol has been identified as 25-year-old Noah Green of Indiana.